This episode features discussions of depression, suicide, and suicidal ideation. Discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. 1974, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Philip Converse paced in his living room, his nerves fluttering as he adjusted his tie. After a deep breath, he picked up the phone and dialed. A private detective picked up on the other end. He asked Philip what he needed help with. Philip's voice shook as he spoke. His sister Elizabeth, better known as Connie, had battled depression for years. Then, in August 1974, she'd written goodbye letters to her loved ones and disappeared without a trace. Connie had uprooted her life before, but never like this, and never without keeping in touch. In Philip's farewell letter, she asked her brother to pay her health insurance up until a certain date. That date had long since passed, and she remained missing. Philip broke down on the phone. He needed answers and would pay handsomely to find them. After a moment of silence, the detective explained that he could help Philip locate his sister, but if she didn't want to come back, he couldn't force her to. Tears welled up in Philip's eyes. He hung up the phone. It seemed he might never get closure. Alive or dead, Connie Converse could be gone forever. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our final episode on folk musician Connie Converse. After struggling to launch a songwriting career in New York City, she vanished without a trace in August 1974. Last time, we discussed Connie's personal life, her music, and the decline of her mental health. We then detailed how her songs found success decades after she disappeared with the help of public radio and the internet. This time, we'll examine Connie's life in more detail, looking for clues to help us determine what could have happened to the woman who might arguably have been America's first ever singer-songwriter. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. 
we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It go down. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In 1924, Elizabeth Eaton Converse was born to a devoutly religious family. By the 1940s, she'd changed her name to Connie and moved to New York City to pursue music. She spent her 20s writing folk songs and rebelling against her traditional upbringing. After little came of her musical ambitions in New York, Connie moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1960, where she took an editorial position at an academic journal. By the age of 36, Connie was struggling with her mental health, in particular, an affliction she referred to as her blue funk. This was made worse when in the early 70s, Connie received two devastating pieces of news. She lost her job, and her doctor told her she needed a hysterectomy. After turning 50 in August 1974, Connie Converse said goodbye to her brother and friends, packed up her Volkswagen Beetle, and drove away. Officially, she's never been seen or heard from again. In her final instructions to her brother, Connie asked Philip to pay her health insurance up until a certain date. She never explained why, but Philip worried that something terrible would happen when that day passed. Searching for answers, Philip found a filing cabinet that belonged to Connie in his attic. Inside, he found old journal entries, poems, notes, and a farewell letter. Addressed to, quote, anyone who ever asks. It read, So let me go, please. And please accept my thanks for those happy times that each of you has given me over the years. And please know that I would have preferred to give you more than I ever did or could. I am in everyone's debt. Philip did as Connie requested. He let her go for 35 years, never knowing if she was alive or dead, always hoping she'd return. But from the moment she left, Philip and Connie's closest friends feared the worst. They'd all known about Connie's blue funk for quite some time. Though Connie was never officially diagnosed with clinical depression so far as we know, in her farewell letter she wrote, As an overeducated peasant, I've read a good bit about middle-aged depression and know several cases other than my own. 
According to established psychiatric consensus, those who suffer from major depressive disorders tend to lose interest in activities that previously brought them joy. In Connie's case, when she moved to Ann Arbor, she stopped writing music. But even while living in New York, Connie's lyrics described feelings of isolation. In her song called Sorrow Is My Name, she wrote from the perspective of sadness itself, sneaking in and out of people's minds. In the bridge of the song, sorrow croons. And if you fear me, I will come in haste. And if you love me, I will go away. And if you scorn me, I will lay you waste. And if you know me, I will come to stay. Perhaps Connie wrote from her own experience, overcome by a deep, unshakable sadness that she felt would live inside her forever. She certainly wouldn't be the first person to live with undiagnosed depression. In fact, historians theorize that many historical figures battled similar mental illnesses before they were ever fully understood. For example, both Frankenstein author Mary Shelley and President Abraham Lincoln reported experiencing significant bouts of melancholia. They'd regularly fall into deep sadness, often unrelated to the events of their day-to-day lives. Some scholars have interpreted these spells as episodes of clinical depression, a diagnosis that didn't exist in the 1800s when both lived. Almost a century later, as Connie struggled with her blue funk, there was still an incredible amount of debate surrounding what constituted and caused depression. Throughout the 1900s, doctors around the world published opinions, but the medical field never reached consensus. Early researchers like Sigmund Freud believed depression was the result of traumatic childhood experiences. Of course, psychologists today understand that the causes are much more nuanced and multifaceted. They include both genetic and societal factors. And this understanding started to take shape in the 1970s when clinicians set standards for diagnosing and treating clinical depression. Then, in 1975, one year after Connie disappeared, doctors first coined the term major depressive disorder. Perhaps it was one year too late for Connie. Unfortunately, we have no way to know what Connie did or didn't know about the progress being made to better understand depression. We also can't say whether or not she would have sought treatment if she did. However, there was an enormous amount of societal stigma associated with mental health in the 1970s, stigmas that the world is still trying to shed today far fewer people received the care they needed. And according to those closest to Connie, she may have been grappling with more than just her mental health. Friends often remarked on how Connie never had a boyfriend or a husband in all the time they knew her. Connie's friend Jean Deitch and her brother Philip both later suggested this could have been because Connie was gay. Now, there's no actual evidence to support this conclusion, but if true, It could help explain why her lyrics consistently expressed feelings of being an outcast. It may have also had something to do with why she dropped out of college to move to New York in the first place and away from her religious upbringing. 
In the 50s, Greenwich Village was a hotbed of art and music, but it was also a sanctuary for the queer community. The neighborhood made history books in 1969 when demonstrators protested against the NYPD for gay liberation during the landmark Stonewall Riots. And though Connie left New York nine years before Stonewall, the village was still home to a vibrant community of self-proclaimed outcasts when she was a resident. It's very possible she moved to the city for more than a music career, to live freely, able to embrace every aspect of her identity. She certainly wouldn't have been the first, nor the last. But if living freely was her intention, it appears that life never came to fruition. As we mentioned last episode, she kept her personal life hidden from even her closest friends and family. And if she didn't find what she was looking for in New York, it's unlikely she found it in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Perhaps after so many years of feeling like an outcast, Connie felt there was no way out, except to do something drastic. Unfortunately, if Connie was grappling with her sexual identity, it very well could have contributed to her blue funk. According to The Trevor Project, a nonprofit focused on suicide prevention efforts among lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer, and questioning youth, members of the overall LGBTQIA community are three times more likely to contemplate suicide than their peers and they're five to six times more likely to attempt it. In her goodbye letter to Philip, Connie tried to explain her decision to leave. She said she wanted to strike out on her own and make a new life for herself. She mentioned that perhaps she'd return in 10 years or so. But even as Philip read these words, he felt she'd written her final goodbye. In a later interview with NPR, he spoke about a memory he had of Connie, which he believed foreshadowed the reason behind her disappearance. On the other side of Lake Huron, across from Ann Arbor, there's a small Canadian village called Tobermory. At the edge of town is a spit of land that sticks out into the wild waters of the lake. One day, Connie remarked how she liked to drive along the road right up to the very tip of the land where it ends. He guessed that his sister drove to a place like Tobermory and then kept going, off the road and into the unforgiving embrace of the water. So this is what Philip believed until a few years after Connie disappeared, when he got a call. Coming up, Philip finds a new lead about Connie's whereabouts. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast. They say there's someone for everyone, a soul to share your secrets with, a companion to grow old with, a conspirator to commit crimes with, Starting this February on Spotify, learn about the lethal and legendary lovers who fought the law in the ParCast Limited series, Criminal Couples. 
If you've ever referred to your best friend or beloved as your partner in crime, this exclusive series is for you. Beginning February 1st, join me for a collection of unlawful love stories from shows across the ParCast network. Discover the extreme beliefs of cult leaders Tony and Susan Alamo, enter Fred and Rose West's real-life house of horrors, and experience the madness and motives of the San Francisco witch killers. Fall for the most famous and feared pairs in history in the Spotify original from ParCast, Criminal Couples. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify. Now back to the story. Following her disappearance in 1974, Connie Converse left few clues behind as to what she planned to do next. At first, her family feared she died by suicide. But a few years after her disappearance, Philip Converse received word that his sister could still be alive. In interviews, Philip only spoke vaguely about the individual who reported the tip. But whoever it was reportedly found her name in a Kansas City phone book clear as day. Elizabeth Converse. Even in the early years after Connie's disappearance, though he feared the worst, Philip held out hope that Connie was still alive, and he kept returning to one memory that was both a distressor and a comfort to him. In the early 1940s, Elizabeth was a student at Concord High School. One of her close friends was a girl named Frances, or Franny Flint. Prior to graduating, Franny ended her own life. Her suicide sent shockwaves through the school, and everyone was left wondering why. Eventually, grief gave way to anger, and many felt frustrated by Franny's actions. One of the only people to object to these frustrations was a young Connie Converse. Like everyone else, Connie was heartbroken over Franny's death. However, she didn't judge her classmate's decision. She believed that life was a gift, yes, but that everyone had a right to choose their own ending. After Connie's disappearance, this memory haunted Philip. But now he wondered whether she hadn't chosen to close the book of her life. Maybe she rewrote the ending. Maybe she started over in Kansas City. For years, Philip had resisted looking for his lost sister, wanting to respect her wishes and privacy. But now something changed inside him. It had been too long. He'd been robbed of enough time with his beloved sister. He contacted a private investigator. The detective agreed to help Philip find Connie, but stressed that if found, he could not and would not bring her back to Michigan against her will. Simply put, she had every right to disappear. After the consultation, Philip made the heart-wrenching decision not to pursue the Kansas City lead. If Connie was still alive, he needed to trust that one day she'd come home on her own. He only hoped that wherever she was, she was alive and happy. Of course, there's no way to know whether the Elizabeth Converse in Kansas City was Connie. It could have just as easily been someone who simply shared her name. 
According to some sources, the name Elizabeth is the fourth most popular girl's name in the past century. And though Converse isn't a common surname, it's not unique either. Not to mention, Connie reportedly hated being called Elizabeth. If she wanted to give herself a new identity, it's unlikely that she would have returned to her birth name. But even if the name in the phone book wasn't Connie, there's still some evidence to suggest she could have left to start a new life. The most obvious being, if she was dead, nobody found her body. In the farewell note found in Philip's attic, which we quoted earlier, Connie referred to finding her niche elsewhere. She wrote, I might survive there quite a few years, who knows? But you understand, I have to do it by myself, with no benign umbrella. Human society fascinates me and awes me and fills me with grief and joy. I just can't find my place to plug into it. In other words, she wanted to make a leap of faith without a safety net. This could explain why she moved her belongings into Philip's attic and painstakingly wrote goodbye letters to loved ones. In this context, her request to have Philip pay her health insurance up until a certain date takes on new meaning. She was recently unemployed, so she likely needed coverage until she could get back on her feet. Maybe the end date was a deadline she gave herself to motivate her. She needed to settle into her new life by the time it ran out. Maybe she had every intention of showing up on Philip's doorstep. But alas, Connie never did. And she had many occasions to return. Not long after Connie's disappearance, Connie's mother died. If she knew about the passing, she did not attend the funeral. Sure, Connie and her mother had their differences, but they'd always stayed in contact throughout Connie's life. Avoiding her mother's funeral would be out of character for what we know of Connie's personality. And of course, she had another prime opportunity to return. When she started amassing a fan base, one who celebrated her music on the radio and in film, TV, and theater. When she didn't step into her own spotlight, fans were forced to flock to the internet to discuss theories about what might have happened to her. One online thread suggests a combination of two theories. First, that Connie ran away to start a new life. And second, she died by suicide. In 1996, a woman who died by suicide was found in an apartment in Fairfax, Virginia. Prior to ending her life, this person, labeled a Jane Doe, had left a simple note requesting a cremation, asking that nobody perform an autopsy. She had a scar on her abdomen, potentially from a C-section. As theorists noted, this Jane Doe was roughly the same age as Connie would have been, with a similar physical description. And the scar on her lower belly could have been from the hysterectomy doctors advised Connie to get. We're not going to devote too much time to the many speculations from online sleuths. But the Jane Doe theory draws attention to another mystery surrounding Connie, her hysterectomy. According to the Mayo Clinic, there are many reasons women may need their uterus surgically removed, many of which are benign. However, hysterectomies are often a last resort when trying to stop the spread of cervical or uterine cancer. 
If Connie received a terminal diagnosis, perhaps her empathetic nature led her to hide it from her friends and family, so they wouldn't worry. Maybe Connie left to live out her final days on her own terms, not wanting to burden her loved ones with her passing. But there's still one piece of physical evidence that points to a different, more optimistic direction. Connie's car. It's easy for a missing person to remain undiscovered, but much more difficult to hide a vehicle, like a Volkswagen Beetle. If something happened to Connie, it probably would have been found abandoned somewhere. So maybe, just like her car, Connie is still out there somewhere. Coming up, we'll try to track down Connie. Now, back to the story. After dropping out of college and moving to New York, Connie Converse spent more than 10 years trying to succeed as a folk musician in New York City before moving to Ann Arbor, Michigan. Paralyzed by what she called her blue funk, in August 1974, Connie packed up her car, drove away, and seemingly vanished into thin air. Some speculate that Connie disappeared to start over, to find a new life, somewhere free from expectation. After all, neither Connie's car nor her body have ever been found, so maybe she's still alive. The American public rediscovered Connie's songs in the early 2000s, decades after her disappearance. At the time, Philip was Connie's last surviving relative, and Connie left him the rights to her catalog. After learning that recordings still existed of his sister, he approved the release of an album of her songs in 2009. For decades, Philip believed Connie's music had disappeared with her. So he was overjoyed that thousands of people could now hear his sister's gift. Ultimately, Philip Converse died in 2014, never receiving closure or learning what truly became of the sister who helped raise him. For 40 years, he held out hope that Connie lived a happy, fulfilled life after her disappearance, but suspected otherwise. As we mentioned, Philip speculated that Connie might have been gay and that her sexuality contributed to her feelings of isolation. As evidence, he cited her lack of relationships with men. Of course, based on this logic, she could have been straight and not interested in traditional relationships. Or she could have been asexual, or even aromantic. In a sobering study from 2012, researchers found that 46% of homeless queer youth ran away from home due to their family's rejection of their sexualities. And if we know anything about Connie, it's that she felt misunderstood and rejected. But it's important to acknowledge that rejection doesn't always lead to tragedy. If New York wasn't the sanctuary Connie hoped for, maybe she found someplace else, or someone else. People around the world, especially those in queer communities, have expanded their definition of what it means to have family. Many refer to their inner circles as their chosen family or found family. One of the many existing online definitions of which reads, 
People who are not blood family, but who a person forges deep and meaningful bonds with based on shared values, mutual care and support, understanding, unconditional love, and positive regard. Oftentimes, these relationships are created because a person feels a lack of these qualities in their existing relationships. We can only hope that Connie lived to discover something similar. Connie has the potential to become a defining figure of folk music who, for decades, nobody had ever heard of. Her frank, poetic, raw lyrics and haunting melodies provided a window into the soul of a complicated woman. Listeners can hear her hopes, her fears, and the sadness that haunted her. Her gift to the world was her music. Arguably, she was a precursor to some of the greatest lyricists of a generation, from Joni Mitchell to Joan Baez to Patti Smith. She wasn't the first artist that wouldn't resonate in her own time, and she wouldn't be the last. Her story of coming close to success is a touchstone for anyone who has ever fought for something they loved and failed. There are those who say any story, if continued long enough, becomes a tragedy. But we're not certain that's the case for Connie Converse. Though she left the stage, the curtains never fully closed. Unlike songs, lives don't come with themes written in. Only when they've been fully lived do the motifs come into view. And for Connie, perhaps the last chords haven't faded out yet. Maybe Connie died by suicide. Or maybe she ran away to live the life she wanted. Maybe it was something in between. She had a terminal illness and died alone to spare her family the pain. The truth is, we simply don't know. And in that dearth of knowledge, there is ample room for hope. Maybe Connie did live to finally see her success. When Connie's album was released, she would have been 85 years old. Perhaps in a nursing home somewhere, the day it was released, an old woman asked an aide if they'd help her listen to some music. Together, they typed in How Sad, How Lovely into the search bar and plugged in some speakers. When the old woman pressed play, the gentle strumming of guitar came through the speakers. Voices chatted in the background, checking the sound levels for the player on the homemade tape in Jean Deitch's kitchen. The old woman recognized the chords, and as she listened, a strong, clear voice began singing of love, of loneliness, and above all, of living. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next time with a new episode. For more information on Connie Converse, amongst the many sources we used, we found SF Gates' article, The Musical Mystery of Connie Converse by Delphine Vigil, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. 
Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Jay Cohen, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Matthew Teamstra, with writing assistance by Molly Quinlan and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein, and research by Bradley Klein and Brian Petrus. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Hi, it's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the new ParCast limited series, Criminal Couples. From apocalyptic cult leaders to bank-robbing bandits to married mafiosos, these couples give new meaning to Till Death Do Us Part. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify.